0: the picture of dorian gray chapter 18 the next day he did not leave the house and indeed spent most of the time in his own room sick with a wild terror of dying and yet indifferent to life itself the consciousness of being hunted snared tracked down had begun to dominate him If the tapestry but did tremble in the wind, he shook. The dead leaves that were blown against the leaded pane seemed to him like his own wasted resolutions and wild regrets. When he closed his eyes, he saw again the sailor's face peering through the mist-stained glass, and horror seemed once more to lay its hand upon his heart. But perhaps it had been only his fancy that had called vengeance out of the night and set the hideous shapes of punishment before him. Actual life was chaos, but there was something terribly logical in the imagination. It was the imagination that set remorse to dog the feet of sin. It was the imagination that made each crime bear its misshapen brood. In the common world of fact, the wicked were not punished, nor the good rewarded. Success was given to the strong, failure thrust upon the weak. That was all. Besides, had any stranger been prowling round the house, he would have been seen by the servants or the keepers. Had any footmarks been found on the flower beds, the gardeners would have reported it. Yes, it had been merely fancy. Sybil Vane's brother had not come back to kill him. He had sailed away in his ship to founder in some winter sea. From him, at any rate, he was safe. Why, the man did not know who he was, could not know who he was. The mask of youth had saved him. And yet, if it had been merely an illusion, how terrible it was to think that conscience could raise such fearful phantoms and give them visible form and make them move before one. What sort of life would his be if day and night shadows of his crime were to peer at him from silent corners, to mock him from secret places, to whisper in his ear as he sat at the feast, to wake him with icy fingers as he lay asleep? As the thought crept through his brain, he grew pale with terror, and the air seemed to him to have become suddenly colder. Oh, and what wild hour of madness he had killed his friend! How ghastly the mere memory of the scene! he saw it all again. Each hideous detail came back to him with added horror. Out of the black cave of time, terrible and swathed in scarlet, rose the image of his sin. When Lord Henry came in at six o'clock, he found him crying as one whose heart will break. It was not till the third day that he ventured to go out. There was something in the clear pine-scented air of that winter morning that seemed to bring him back to his joyousness and his ardor for life. But it was not merely the physical conditions of environment that had caused his change. His own nature had revolted against the excess of of anguish that had sought to maim and mar the perfection of its calm. With subtle and finely wrought temperaments, it is always so. Their strong passions must either bruise or bend. They either slay the man or themselves die. Shallow sorrows and shallow loves live on. The loves and sorrows that are great are destroyed by their own plenitude. Besides, he had convinced himself that he had been the victim of a terror-stricken imagination and looked back now on his fears with something of pity and not a little of contempt." after breakfast he walked with the duchess for an hour in the garden and then drove across the park to join the shooting party the crisp frost lay like salt upon the grass the sky was an inverted cup of blue metal a thin film of ice bordered the flat reed-grown lake as the corner of the pine wood at the corner of the pine wood he caught sight of sir geoffrey clauston the duchess's brother jerking two spent cartridges out of his gun He jumped from the cart and, having told the groom to take the mare home, made his way towards his guest through the withered bracken and rough undergrowth. "'Have you had good sport, Geoffrey?' he asked. "'Not very good, Dorian. I think most of the birds have gone to the open. I dare say it will be better after lunch, when we get new ground.' Dorian strolled along by his side. The keen, aromatic air, the brown and red lights that glimmered in the wood, the hoarse cries of the beaters ringing out from time to time, and the sharp snaps of the guns that followed fascinated him and filled him with a sense of delightful freedom. He was dominated by the carelessness of happiness, by the high of indifference of joy." Suddenly, from a lumpy tussock of old grass, some twenty yards in front of them, with black-tipped ears erect and long-hinder limbs, throwing it forward, stared a hare. It bolted for a thicket of alders. Sir Geoffrey put his gun to his shoulder. But there was something in the animal's grace of movement that strangely charmed Dorian Gray. And he cried out at once, "'Don't shoot it, Geoffrey! Let it live!' "'What nonsense, Dorian!' laughed his companion, and as the hare bounded into the thicket, he fired. There were two cries heard, the cry of a hare in pain, which is dreadful, the cry of a man in agony, which is worse. Good heavens, I have hit a beater, exclaimed Sir Geoffrey. What an ass the man was to get in front of the guns. Stop shooting there, he called out at the top of his voice. A man is hurt. The headkeeper came running up with a stick in his hand. "'Where, sir, where is he?' he shouted. At the same time, the firing ceased along the line. "'Here,' answered Sir Geoffrey angrily, hurrying towards the thicket. "'Why on earth don't you keep your men back? Spoiled my shooting for the day!' Dorian watched them as they plunged into the alder clump, brushing the lithe-swinging branches aside. In a few moments they emerged, dragging a body after them into the sunlight." he turned away in horror. It seemed to him that misfortune followed wherever he went. He heard Sir Geoffrey ask if the man was really dead, and the affirmative answer of the keeper. The wood seemed to him to have become suddenly alive with faces. There was the trampling of myriad feet and the low buzz of voices. The great copper-breasted pheasant came beating through the boughs overhead. After a few moments, That were to him and his perturbed state like endless hours of pain, he felt a hand laid on his shoulder. He started and looked around. Dorian, said Lord Henry, I had better tell you I had better tell them that the shooting is stopped for today. It would not look well to go on. I wish it were stopped forever, Harry, he answered bitterly. The whole thing is hideous and cruel. Is the man? He could not finish the sentence. I'm afraid so, rejoined Lord Henry. He got the whole charge of shot in his chest. He must have died almost instantaneously. Come, let us go home. They walked side by side in the direction of the avenue for nearly 50 yards without speaking. Then Dorian looked at Lord Henry and said, with a heavy sigh. It is a bad omen, Harry, a a very bad omen. What is? "'asked Lord Henry. "'Oh, this accident, I suppose, my dear fellow, "'it can't be helped. "'It was the man's own fault. "'Why did he get in front of the guns? "'Besides, it is nothing to us. "'It is rather awkward for Geoffrey, of course. "'It does not do to pepper beaters. "'It makes people think that one is a wild shot, "'and Geoffrey is not. "'He shoots very straight, "'but there is no use talking about the matter.' "'Dorian shook his head. "'It is a bad omen, Harry.' I feel as if something horrible were going to happen to some of us, to myself perhaps, he added, passing his hand over his eyes with a gesture of pain. The elder men laughed. The only horrible thing in the world is in we, Dorian. That is the one sin for which there is no forgiveness. But we are not likely to suffer from it unless these fellows keep chattering about this thing at dinner. I must tell them that the subject is to be tabooed. As for omens... There is no such thing as an omen. Destiny does not send us heralds. She is too wise or too cruel for that. Besides, what on earth could happen to you, Dorian? You have everything in the world that a man can want. There is no one who would not be delighted to change places with you. There is no one with whom I would not change places, Harry. Don't laugh like that. I am telling you the truth. The wretched peasant who has just died is better off than I am. I have no terror of death. "'It is the coming of death that terrifies me. "'Its monstrous wings seem to wheel "'in the leaden and the leaden air around me. "'Good heavens, don't you see a man "'moving behind the trees there, watching me, waiting for me?' "'Lord Henry looked in the direction "'in which the trembling gloved hand was pointing. "'Yes,' he said, smiling. "'I see the gardener waiting for you. "'I suppose he wants to ask you "'what flowers you wish to have on the table tonight.' "'How absurdly nervous you are, my dear fellow. "'You must come and see my doctor when we get back to town.' "'Dorian heaved a sigh of relief "'as he saw the gardener approaching. "'The man touched his hat, "'glanced for a moment at Lord Henry in a hesitating manner, "'and then produced a letter which he handed to his master. "'Her grace told me to wait for an answer,' he murmured. "'Dorian put the letter in his pocket. "'Tell her grace that I am coming in,' he said coldly. The man turned round and went rapidly in the direction of the house. How fond women are of doing dangerous things, laughed Lord Henry. It is one of the qualities in them that I admire most. A woman will flirt with anybody in the world as long as other people are looking on. How fond you are of saying dangerous things, Harry. In the present instance, you are quite astray. I like the Duchess very much, but I don't love her and the Duchess loves you very much, but she likes you less, so you are excellently matched. You are talking scandal, Harry, and there is never any basis for scandal. The basis of every scandal is an immoral certainty, said Lord Henry, lighting a cigarette. You would sacrifice anybody, Harry, for the sake of an epigram. The world goes to the altar of its own accord, was the answer. I wish I could, love. "'cried Dorian Gray with a deep note of pathos in his voice. "'But I seem to have lost the passion "'and forgotten the desire. "'I am too much concentrated on myself. "'My own personality has become a burden to me. "'I want to escape, to go away, to forget. "'It was silly of me to come down here at all. "'I think I shall, I shall send a wire to Harvey "'to have the yacht got ready. "'On a yacht, one is safe.' "'Safe from what, Dorian? "'Are you in some trouble?' "'Why not tell me what it is? "'You know I would help you.' "'I can't tell you, Harry,' he answered sadly, "'and I dare say it is only a fancy of mine. "'This unfortunate incident has upset me. "'I have a horrible presentiment "'that something of the kind may happen to me. "'What nonsense! "'I hope it is, but I can't help feeling it. "'Ah, here is the Duchess, "'looking like Artemis in a tailor-made gown. "'You see we have come back, Duchess.' I have heard all about it, Mr. Gray, she answered. Poor Geoffrey is terribly upset, and it seems that you asked him not to shoot the hare. How curious! Yes, it was very curious. I don't know what made me say it. Some whim, I suppose. It looked the loveliest of little live things. But I am sorry they told you about the man. It is a hideous subject. It is an annoying subject, broke in Lord Henry. It has no psychological value at all. Now, if Geoffrey had done the thing on purpose, how interesting he would be. I should like to know someone who had committed a real murder. How horrid of you, Harry, cried the Duchess. Isn't it, Mr. Gray? Harry, Mr. Gray is ill again. He is going to faint. Dorian drew himself up with an effort and smiled. It is nothing, Duchess, he murmured. My nerves are dreadfully out of order. That is all. I am afraid I walked too far this morning. I didn't hear what Harry said. What Harry said was it very bad? You must tell me some other time. I think I must go and lie down. You will excuse me, won't you?' They had reached reached the great flight of steps that led from the conservatory on to the terrace. As the glass door closed behind Dorian, Lord Henry turned and looked at the Duchess with his slumberous eyes. "'Are you very much in love with him?' he asked. She did not answer for some time, but stood gazing at the landscape. "'I wish I knew.' she said at last. He shook his head. Knowledge would be fatal. It is the uncertainty that charms one. A mist makes things wonderful. One may lose one's way. All ways end at the same point, my dear Gladys. What is that? Delusion. It is my debut in life, she sighed. It came to you crowned. I am tired of strawberry leaves. They become you, only in public. You would miss them, said lord henry i will not part with a petal monmouth has ears old age is dull of hearing has he never been jealous i wish he had been he glanced about as if in search of something what are you looking for she inquired the button from your foil he answered you have dropped it she laughed i still have the mask it makes your eyes lovelier was his reply She laughed again. Her teeth showed like white seeds in a scarlet fruit. Upstairs, in his own room, Dorian Gray was lying on a sofa, with terror in every tingling fiber of his body. Life had suddenly become too hideous a burden for him to bear. The dreadful death of the unlucky beater, shot in the thicket like a wild animal, had seemed to him to prefigure death for himself also. He had nearly swooned at what Lord Henry had said in a chance mood of cynical jesting at five o'clock. He rang his bell for his servant to give him orders to give him orders to pack his things for the night express to town and to have the brougham at the door by eight-thirty. He was determined not to sleep another night at Soby Royal. It was an ill-omened place. death walked there in the sunlight. the grass of the forest had been spotted with blood. Then he wrote a note to Lord Henry, telling him that he was going to town to consult his doctor and asking him to entertain his guest in his absence. As he was putting it into the envelope, a knock came to the door, and his valet informed him that the head keeper wished to see him. He frowned and bit his lip. Send him in, he muttered after some moment's hesitation. As soon as the man entered, Dorian pulled his checkbook out of a drawer and spread it out before him. "'I suppose you have come about the unfortunate accident "'this morning, Thornton,' he said, taking up a pen. "'Yes, sir,' answered the gamekeeper. "'Was the poor fellow married? "'Had he any people dependent upon him?' "'asked Dorian, looking bored. "'If so, I should not like them to be left in want, "'and will send them any sum of money you think necessary.' "'We don't know who he is, sir. "'That is what I took the liberty of coming to you about. "'Don't know who he is?' said dorian listlessly what do you mean wasn't he one of your men no sir never saw him before seems like a sailor sir the pen dropped from dorian's from dorian gray's hand and he felt as if his heart had suddenly stopped beating a sailor he cried out did you say a sailor yes sir he looks as if he had been some sort of sailor tattooed on both arms and that kind of thing "'Was there anything found on him?' said Dorian, leaning forward and looking at the man with startled eyes. "'Anything that would tell his name?' "'Some money, sir. Not much, and a six-shooter. There was no name of any kind. "'A decent-looking man, sir, but rough-like. A sort of sailor, we think.' Dorian started to his feet. A terrible hope fluttered past him. He clutched at it madly. "'Where is the body?' he exclaimed. "'Quick! I must see it at once!' It is in an empty stable in the home farm, sir. The folk don't like to have that sort of thing in their houses. They say a corpse brings bad luck. The home farm. Go there at once and meet me. Tell one of the grooms to bring my horse round. No, no, never mind. I'll go to the stables myself. It will save time. In less than a quarter of an hour, Dorian Gray was galloping down the long avenue as hard as he could go. The trees seemed to sweep past him in spectral procession and wild shadows to fling themselves across his path. Once the mare swerved at a white gatepost and nearly threw him, he lashed her across the neck with with his crop. She clucked the dusky air like an arrow. The stones flew from her hoofs. At last he reached the home farm. Two men were loitering in the yard. He leaped from the saddle and threw the reins to one of them, in the farthest stable a light was glimmering. Something seemed to tell him that the body was there, and he hurried to the door to put his hand upon the latch. There he paused for a moment, feeling that he was on the brink of a discovery that would either make or mar his life. Then he thrust the door open and entered. On a heap of sacking in the far corner was lying the dead body of a man dressed in a coarse shirt and a pair of blue trousers. A spotted handkerchief had been placed over the face. A coarse candle, stuck in a bottle, sputtered beside it. Dorian Gray shuddered. He felt that this could not be the hand to take the handkerchief away, and called out to one of the farm servants to come to him. Take that thing off the face. I wish to see it he said, clutching at the doorpost for support. When the farm servant had done so, he stepped forward. A cry of joy broke from his lips. The man who had been shot in the thicket was James Vane. He stood there for some minutes looking at the dead body. As he rode home, his eyes were full of tears, for he knew he was safe. Chapter 19 "'There is no use your telling me that you are going to be good,' cried Lord Henry, dipping his white fingers into a red copper bowl filled with rose water. "'You are quite perfect. Pray don't change.' Dorian Gray shook his head. "'No, Harry. I have done too many dreadful things in my life. I am not going to do any more. I began my good actions yesterday.' "'Where were you yesterday?' "'In the country, Harry.' I was staying at a little inn by myself. My dear boy, said Lord Henry, smiling. Anybody can be good in the country. There are no temptations there. That is the reason why people who live out of town are so absolutely uncivilized. Civilization is not by any means an easy thing to attain to. There are only two ways by which a man can reach it. One is by being cultured, the other by being corrupt. Country people have no opportunity of being either, so they stagnate. Culture and corruption, echoed Dorian. I have known something of both. It seems terrible to me now that they should ever be found together. For I have a new ideal, Harry. I am going to alter. I think I have altered. You have not yet told me what your good action was. Or did you say you had done more than one?' asked his companion as he spilled into his plate a little crimson pyramid of seeded strawberries and, through a perforated shell-shaped spoon, snowed white sugar upon them. I can tell you, Harry, it is not a story I could tell to anyone else. I spared somebody. It sounds vain, but you understand what I mean. She was quite beautiful and wonderfully like Sybil Vane. I think it was that which first attracted me to her. You remember Sybil, don't you? How long ago that seems. Well, Hetty was not one of our own class, of course. She was simply a girl in the village. But I really loved her. I am quite sure that I loved her. All during this wonderful May that we have been having, I used to run down and see her two or three times a week. Yesterday she met me in a little orchard, "'The apple blossoms kept tumbling down on her hair, and she was laughing. "'We were to have gone away together this morning at dawn. "'Suddenly I determined to leave her as flower-like as I had found her. "'I should think the novelty of of the emotion must have given you a thrill of real pleasure, Dorian,' "'interrupted Lord Henry. "'But I can finish your ideal for you. "'You gave her good advice and broke her heart. "'That was the beginning of your reformation.' "'Harry, you are horrible. "'You mustn't say these dreadful things. Hetty's heart is not broken. "'Of course she cried and all that, "'but there is no disgrace upon her. "'She can live like Perdita "'in her garden of mint and marigold "'and weep over a faithless Florizel,' "'said Lord Henry laughing "'as he leaned back in his chair. "'My dear Dorian, "'you have the most curiously boyish moods. "'Do you think this girl "'will ever really be content now "'with any one of her own rank?' "'I suppose she will be married some day "'to a rough carter or a grinning plowman. "'Well, the fact of having met you and loved you "'will teach her to despise her husband, "'and she will be wretched. "'From a moral point of view, "'I cannot say that I think much "'of your great renunciation. "'Even as a beginning, it is poor. "'Besides, how do you know that Hetty "'isn't floating at the present moment "'in some starlit mill pond "'with lovely water lilies round her, "'like Ophelia? "'I can't bear this, Harry,' "'You mock at everything "'and then suggest the most serious tragedies. "'I am sorry I told you now. "'I don't care what you say to me. "'I know I was right in acting as I did. "'Poor Hetty, as I rode past the farm this morning, "'I saw her white face set the window "'like a spray of jasmine. "'Don't let us talk about it anymore "'and don't try to persuade me "'that the first good action I have done for years, "'the first little bit of self-sacrifice "'I have ever known is really sort of a sin.' I want to be better. I am going to be better. Tell me something about yourself. What is going on in in town? I have not been to the club for days. The people are still discussing poor Basil's disappearance. I should have thought they had got tired of that by this time said Dorian, pouring himself out some wine and frowning slightly. My dear boy, they have only been talking about it for six weeks, and the British public are not really equal to the mental strain of having more than one topic every three months. They have been very fortunate lately, however. They have had my own divorce case and Alan Campbell's suicide. Now they have got the mysterious disappearance of an artist. Scotland Yard still insists that the man in and great Ulster who left for Paris by the midnight train on the 9th of November was poor Basil, and the French police declared that Basil never arrived in Paris at all. I suppose in about a fortnight we shall be told that he has been seen in San Francisco. It is an odd thing. Everyone who disappears is said to have been seen in San Francisco. It must be a delightful city and possess all the attractions of the next world. What do you think happened to Basil? asked Dorian, holding up his burgundy against the light, and wondering how it was that he could discuss the matter so calmly. I have not the slightest idea. If Basil chooses to hide himself, it is no business of mine. If he is dead, I don't want to think about him. Death is the only thing that ever terrifies me. I hate it. Why? said the younger man, wearily. Because, said Lord Henry, Passing beneath his nostrils the gilt trellis of an open vinaigrette box, one can survive everything nowadays except that. Death and vulgarity are the only two facts in the nineteenth century that one cannot explain away. Let us have our coffee in the music room, Dorian. You must play Chopin to me. The man with whom my life ran away played Chopin exquisitely. Poor Victoria, I was very fond of her. The house is rather lonely without her. Of course, married life is merely a habit, a bad habit, but then one regrets the loss of even of one's worst habits. Perhaps one regrets them the most. They are such an essential part of one's personality. Dorian said nothing but rose from the table and, passing into the next room, sat down to the piano and let his fingers stray across the white and black Ivory of the keys. After the coffee had been brought in, he stopped and looking over at Lord Henry said, Harry, did it ever occur-, occur to you that Basil was murdered? Lord Henry yawned. Basil was very popular and always wore a Waterbury watch. Why should he have been murdered? He was not clever enough to have enemies. Of course, he had a wonderful genius for painting, but a man can paint like Velasquez and yet be as dull as possible. "'Basil was really rather dull. "'He only interested me once, and that was when he told me years ago "'that he had a wild adoration for you "'and and that you were the dominant motive of his art.' "'I was very fond of Basil,' said Dorian, with a note of sadness in his voice. "'But don't people say that he was murdered?' "'Oh, some of the papers do. "'It does not seem to me to be at all probable.' "'I know there are dreadful places in Paris, "'but Basil was not the sort of man to have gone to them. "'He had no curiosity. "'It was his chief defect.' "'What would you say, Harry, "'if I told you that I had murdered Basil?' "'said the younger man. "'He watched him intently after he had spoken. "'I would say, my dear fellow, "'that you were posing for a character that doesn't suit you. "'All crime is vulgar, just as all vulgarity is crime.' It is not in you, Dorian, to commit a murder. I am sorry if I hurt your vanity by saying so, but I assure you it is true. Crime belongs exclusively to the lower orders. I don't blame them in the smallest degree. I should fancy that crime was to them what art is to us, simply a method of procuring extraordinary sensations. A method of procuring sensations? Do you think, then, that a man who has once committed a murder could possibly do the same crime again? Don't tell me that! "'Oh, anything becomes a pleasure if one does it too often,' cried Lord Henry, laughing. "'That is one of the most important secrets of life. "'I should fancy, however, that murder is always a mistake. "'One should never do anything that one cannot talk about after dinner. "'But let us pass from from poor Basil. "'I wish I could believe that he had come to such a really romantic end, as you suggest, "'but I can't. "'I dare say he fell into the seine off an omnibus "'and that the conductor hushed up the scandal.' Yes, I should fancy that was his end. I see him lying now on his back under those dull green waters with the heavy barges floating over him and long weeds catching in his hair. Do you know, I don't think he would have done much more good work. During the last ten years his painting had gone off very much. Dorian heaved a sigh, and Lord Henry strolled across the room and began to stroke the head of a curious java parrot, a large, gray, plumaged bird with pink crest and tail that was balancing itself upon a bamboo perch. As his pointed fingers touched it, it dropped the white scurf of crinkled lids over black, glass-like eyes and began to sway backwards and forwards. "'Yes,' he continued, turning round, and taking his handkerchief out of his pocket, his painting had quite gone off. It seemed to me to have lost something. It had lost an ideal. When you and he ceased to be great friends, he ceased to be a great artist. What was it separated you? I suppose he bored you. If so, he never forgave you. It's a habit bores have. By the way, what has become of that wonderful portrait he did of you? I don't think I have ever seen it since he finished it. Oh, I remember your telling me years ago that you had sent it down to Selby and that it had got mislaid or stolen on the way. You never got it back? What a pity! It was really a masterpiece. I remember I wanted to buy it. I wish I had now. It belonged to Basil's best period. Since then, his work. "'was that curious mixture of bad painting "'and good intentions that always entitles a man "'to be called a representative British artist. "'Did you advertise for it? "'You should.' "'I forget,' said Dorian. "'I I suppose I did, but I never really liked it. "'I am sorry I sat for it. "'The memory of the thing is hateful to me. "'Why do you talk of it? "'It used to remind me of those curious lines in some play. "'Hamlet, I think. "'How do they run?' "'like the painting of a sorrow, a face without a heart. "'Yes, that is what it was like,' Lord Henry laughed. "'If a man treats life artistically, his brain is his heart,' he answered, "'sinking into an armchair.' "'Dorian Gray shook his head and struck some soft chords on the piano, "'like the painting of a sorrow,' he repeated, "'a face without a heart.' "'The elder man lay back and looked at him with half-closed eyes. "'By the way, Dorian,' "'he said after a pause. "'What does it profit a man "'if he gain the whole world and lose... "'How does the quotation run? "'His own soul?' "'The music jarred, and Dorian started "'and stared at his friend. "'Why do you ask me that, Harry?' "'My dear fellow,' "'said Lord Henry, elevating his eyebrows "'in surprise. "'I asked you because I thought you might be able "'to give me an answer. That is all. "'I was going through the park last Sunday, "'and close by the marble arch there stood a little crowd of shabby-looking people listening to some vulgar street preacher. As I passed by, I heard the man yelling out that question to his audience. It struck me as being rather dramatic. London is very rich in curious effects of that kind. A wet Sunday, an uncouth Christian in a mackintosh, a ring of sickly white faces under a broken roof of tripping umbrellas, and a wonderful phrase flung into the air by shrill, hysterical lips. It was really very good in its way quite a suggestion. I thought of telling the prophet that art had a soul, but that man had not. I am afraid, however, he would not have understood me. Don't, Harry. The soul is a terrible reality. It can be bought and sold and bartered away. It can be poisoned or made perfect. There is a soul in each one of us. I know it. Do you feel quite sure of that, Dorian? Quite sure. Ah, then it must be an illusion. The things one feels absolutely certain about are never true. That is the fatality of faith and the lesson of romance. How grave you are. Don't be so serious. What have you or I to do with the superstitions of our age? No, we have given up our belief in the soul. Play me something. Play me a nocturne, Durian, and as you play, tell me in a low voice how you have kept your youth. You must have some secret. I am only ten years older than you are, and I am wrinkled and worn and yellow. You are really wonderful, Dorian. You have never looked more charming than you do tonight. You remind me of the day I I saw you first. You were rather cheeky, very shy, and absolutely extraordinary. You have changed, of course, but not in appearance. I wish you would tell me your secret. To get back my youth, I would do anything in the world, except take exercise, get up early, or be respectable. Youth, there is nothing like it. It's absurd to talk of the ignorance of youth the only people to whose opinions I listen now with any respect are people much younger than myself. They seem in front of me. Life has revealed to them her last wonder. As for the aged, I always contradict the aged. I do it on principle. If you ask them their opinion on something that happened yesterday, they solemnly give you the opinions current in 1820 when people wore high stocks, believed in everything and knew absolutely nothing. How lovely that thing you are playing is. I wonder, did Chopin write it at Majorca? Was the sea weeping round the villa and the salt spray dashing against the panes? It is marvelously romantic. What a blessing it is that there is one art left to us that is not imaginative. Don't stop. I want music tonight. It seems to me that you are the young Apollo and that I am Marsyas listening to you. I have sorrows, Dorian, of my own, that even you know nothing of. The tragedy of old age is not that one is old, but that one is young. I am amazed sometimes at my own sincerity. Ah, Dorian, how happy you are! What an exquisite life you have had! You have drunk deeply of everything. You have crushed the grapes against your palate. Nothing has been hidden from you, and it has all been to you no more than the sound of music. It has not marred you. You are still the same. I am not the same, Harry. Yes, you are the same. I wonder what the rest of your life will be. Don't spoil it by renunciations. At present, you are a perfect type. Don't make yourself incomplete. You are quite flawless now. You need not shake your head. You know you are. Besides, Dorian, don't deceive yourself. Life is not governed by will or intention. Life is a question of nerves and fibers and slowly built up cells in which thought hides itself and passion has its dreams. You may fancy yourself safe and think yourself strong, but a chance tone of color in a room or a morning sky, a particular perfume that you had once loved and that brings subtle memories with it a line from a forgotten poem that you had come across again, a cadence from a piece of music that you had ceased to play. I tell you, Dorian, that it is on things like these that our lives depend. Browning writes about that somewhere, but our own senses imagine them for us. There are moments when the odor when the odor of lilac blanc passes suddenly across me, and I have to live the strangest month of my life over again. I wish I could change places with you, Dorian. The world has cried out against us both, but it has always worshipped you. It will always worship you. You are the type of what the age is searching for and what it is afraid it has found. I am so glad that you have never done anything, never carved a statue or painted a picture or produced anything outside of yourself. Life has been your art. You have set yourself to music. Your days are your sonnets. Dorian rose up from the piano and passed his hand through his hair. "'Yes, life has been exquisite,' he murmured. "'But I am not going to have the same life, Harry, "'and you must not say these extravagant things to me. "'You don't know everything about me. "'I think that if you did, even you would turn from me. "'You laugh. Don't laugh. "'Why have you stopped playing, Dorian? "'Go back and give me the nocturne over again.' Look at that great honey-colored moon that hangs in the dusky air. She is waiting for you to charm her, and if you play, she will come closer to the earth. You won't? Let us go to the club, then. It has been a charming evening, and we must end it charmingly. There is someone at White's who wants immensely to know you. Young Lord Poole, Bournemouth's eldest son, He has already copied your neckties and has begged me to introduce him to you. He is quite delightful and rather reminds me of you. I hope not, said Dorian with a sad look in his eyes. But I am tired tonight, Harry. I shan't go to the club. It is nearly eleven and I want to go to bed early. Do stay. You have never played so well as tonight. There was something in your touch that was wonderful.' "'I had more expression than I had ever heard from it before. "'It is because I am going to be good,' he answered, smiling. "'I am a little changed already.' "'You cannot change to me, Dorian,' said Lord Henry. "'You and I will always be friends. "'Yet you poisoned me with a book once. "'I should not forgive that. "'Harry, promise me that you will never lend that book to anyone. "'It does harm.' "'My dear boy, you are really beginning to moralize. "'You will soon be going about like the converted "'and and the revivalists warning people "'against all the sins of which you have grown tired. "'You are much too delightful to do that. "'Besides, it is no use. "'You and I are what we are, and "'and what we will be, we will be. "'As for being poisoned by a book, "'there is no such thing as that. "'Art has no influence upon action.' It, it annihilates the desire to act. It is superbly sterile. The books that the world calls immoral are books that show the world its own shame. That is all. But we won't discuss literature. Come round tomorrow. I am going to ride at eleven. We might go together and I will take you to lunch afterwards with Lady Branksome. She is a charming woman and wants to consult you about some tapestry she is thinking of buying. Mind you, come or we shall lunch with our, or shall we lunch with our little duchess? She says she never sees you now. Perhaps you are tired of Gladys. I thought you would be. Her clever tongue gets on one's nerves. Well, in any case, be here at eleven. Must I really come, Harry? Certainly. The park is quite lovely now. I don't think there have been such lilacs since the year I met you. Very well. I shall be there at eleven, said Dorian. Good night, Harry. As he reached the door, he hesitated for a moment, as if he had something more to say. Then he sighed and went out. Chapter 20 It was a lovely night, so warm that he threw his coat over his arm and did not even put his silk scarf round his throat. As he strolled home, smoking his cigarette, two young men in evening dress passed him. "'He heard one of them whisper to the other, "'That is Dorian Gray.' "'He remembered how pleased he used to be "'when he was pointed out or stared at or talked about. "'He was tired of hearing his own name now. "'Half the charm of the little village "'where he had been so often lately "'was that no one knew who he was. "'He had often told the girl whom he had lured to "'love him that he was poor, and she had believed him.' He had told her once that he was wicked, and she had laughed at him and answered that wicked people are always very old and very ugly. What a laugh she had, just like a thrush singing, and how pretty she had been in her cotton dresses and her large hats. She knew nothing, but she had everything that he had lost. When he reached home, he found his servant waiting up for him. He sent him to bed and threw himself down on the sofa in the library and began to think over some of the things that Lord Henry had said to him. Was it really true that one could never change? He felt a wild longing for the unstained purity of his boyhood, his rose-white boyhood, as Lord Henry had once called it, He knew that he had tarnished himself, filled his mind with corruption and given horror to his fancy, that he had been an evil influence to others, and had experienced a terrible joy in being so, and that of the lives that he—and of the lives that had crossed his own, it had been the fairest and the most full of promise that he had been brought to shame. But was it all irretrievable? Was there no hope for him? Ah, and what a monstrous moment of pride and passion! He had prayed that the portrait should bear the burden of his days, and he kept the unsullied splendor of eternal youth. All his failure had been due to that. Better for him that each sin of his life had brought its sure swift penalty along with it. There was purification and punishment. Not forgive us our sins, but smite us for our iniquities" Should be the prayer of man to a most just God." the curiously carved mirror that lord henry had given to him so many years ago now was standing on the table and the white-limbed cupids laughed round laughed round it as of old he took it up as he had once done on that night of horror when he had first noted the change in the fatal picture and with wild tear-dimmed eyes looked into its polished shield once, someone who had terribly loved him had written to him a mad letter, ending with these idolatrous words. The world is changed because you, made, because you are made of ivory and gold. The curves of your lips re- rewrite history. The phrases came back to his memory, and he repeated them over and over to himself. Then he loathed his own beauty, and flinging the mirror to the floor, "'crushed it into silver splinters beneath his heel. "'It was his beauty that had ruined him, "'his beauty and the youth that he had prayed for. "'But for those two things, "'his his life might have been free from stain. "'His beauty had been to him but a mask, "'his youth but a mockery. "'What was youth at best? "'A green, an unripe time, "'a time of shallow moods and sickly thoughts. "'Why had he worn its livery? "'Youth had spoiled him.' It was better not to think of the past. Nothing could alter that. It was of himself and of his own future that he had to think. James Vane was hidden in a nameless grave in Selby Churchyard. Alan Campbell had shot himself one night in his laboratory, but had not revealed the secret that he had been forced to know. The excitement, such as it was, over Basil Hallward's disappearance would soon pass away. It was already waning. He was perfectly safe there. Nor, indeed... Was it the death of Basil Howard that weighed most upon his mind? It was the living death of his own soul that troubled him. Basil had painted the portrait that had marred his life. He could not forgive him that. It was the portrait that had done everything. Basil had said things to him that were unbearable, and that he had yet borne with patience. The murder had been simply the madness of a moment. As for Alan Campbell, his suicide had been his own act. He had chosen to do it. It was nothing to him a new life. That was what he wanted. That was what he was waiting for. Surely he had begun it already. He had spared one innocent thing at any rate. He would never again tempt innocence. He would be good. As he thought of Hetty Merton, he began to wonder if the portrait in the locked room had changed. Surely it was not still so horrible as it had been. Perhaps if his life became pure, he would be able to expel every sign of evil passion from the face." Perhaps the signs of evil had already gone away. He would go and look. He took the lamp from the table and crept upstairs. As he unbarred the door, a smile of joy flitted across his strangely young-looking face and lingered for a moment about his lips. Yes, he would be good, and the hideous thing that had been hidden away would no longer be a terror to him. He felt as if the load had been lifted from him already. He went in quietly, locking the door behind him, as was his custom, and dragged the purple hanging from the portrait. A cry of pain and indignation broke from him. He could see no change, save that in the eyes there was a look of cunning, and in the mouth the curved wrinkle of the hypocrite. The thing was still loathsome, more loathsome if possible than before, and the scarlet dew that spotted the hand seemed brighter and more like blood newly spilled. Then he trembled had it been merely vanity that had made him do this one good deed, or the desire for a new sensation, as Lord Henry had hinted, with his mocking laugh, or that passion to act a part that sometimes makes us do things finer than we are ourselves, or perhaps all these? And why was the red stain larger than it had been?' It seemed to have crept like a horrible disease over the wrinkled fingers. There was blood on the painted feet, as though the thing had dripped blood even on the hand that had not held the knife. Confess? Did it mean that he was to confess, to give himself up, and be put to death? He laughed. He felt that the the idea was monstrous. Besides, even if he did confess, who would believe him? There was no trace of the murdered man anywhere.' Everything belonging to him had been destroyed. He himself had burned what had been below stairs. The world would simply say that he was mad. They would shut him up if he persisted in his story. Yet it was his duty to confess, to suffer public shame, and to make public atonement. There was a God who called upon men to tell their sins to earth as well as to heaven. Nothing that he could do would cleanse him till he had told his own sin. His sin. "'He shrugged his shoulders. "'The death of Basil Hallward seemed very little to him. "'He was thinking of Hetty Merton, "'for it was an unjust mirror, "'this mirror of his soul that he was looking at. "'Vanity? Curiosity? Hypocrisy? "'Had there been nothing more in his renunciation than that? "'There had been something more. "'At least he thought so. "'But who could tell? "'No, there had been nothing more. "'Through vanity he had spared her.' In hypocrisy, he had worn the mask of goodness. For curiosity's sake, he had tried the denial of self. He recognized that now. But this murder, was it to dog him all his life? Was he always to be burdened by this past? Was he really to confess? Never. There was only one bit of evidence left against him the picture itself. That was evidence. He would destroy it. Why had he kept it so long? Once it had given him pleasure to watch it changing and growing old. Of late, he had felt no such pleasure. It had kept him awake at night. When he had been away, he had been filled with terror lest other eyes should look upon it. It had brought melancholy across his passions. Its mere memory had marred many moments of joy. It had been like conscience to him, Yes, it had been conscience. He would destroy it. He looked round and saw the knife that had stabbed Basil Hallward. He had cleaned it many times, but there was still no stain left upon it. It was bright and glistened. As it had killed the painter, so it would kill the painter's work and all that that meant.' It would kill the past, and when that was dead, he would be free. It would kill this monstrous soul life, and without its hideous warnings, he would be at peace. He seized the thing and stabbed the picture with it. There was a cry heard and a crash. The cry was so horrible in its agony that the frightened servants woke and crept out of their rooms. Two gentlemen, who were passing in the square below, stopped and looked up at the great house. They walked on till they met a policeman and brought him back. "'The man rang the bell several times, but there was no answer. "'Except for a light in one of the top windows, "'the house was all dark. "'At a time, he went away "'and stood in an adjoining portico and watched. "'Whose house is that, Constable?' "'asked the elder of the two gentlemen. "'Mr. Dorian Gray, sir,' answered the policeman. "'They looked at each other as they walked away and sneered. "'One of them was Sir Henry Ashton's uncle.' Inside, in the servants' part of the house, the half-clad domestics were talking in low whispers to each other. Old Mrs. Leaf was crying and wringing her hands. Francis was as pale as death. After about a quarter of an hour, he got the coachman and one of the footmen and crept upstairs. They knocked, but there was no reply. They called out. Everything was still. Finally, after vainly trying to force the door, they got on the roof and drooped down onto the balcony. The windows yielded easily. Their boats were old. When they entered, they found, hanging upon the wall, a splendid portrait of their master as they had seen him last, and all the wonder of his exquisite youth and beauty. Lying on the floor was a dead man, an evening dress with a knife in his heart. He was withered, wrinkled, and loathsome of visage. It was not till they had examined the rings that they recognized who it was. The end of the picture of Dorian Gray. Thank you guys so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. I really appreciate that you have tuned in and listened to this great story. And I hope you will tune in for further readings here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.